Hello and welcome back to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on Ted Cohen. Over the course of a 50-plus year career, Ted's been at the forefront and oftentimes ahead of the curve in a fast-changing modern music business. Dictionary.com defines a visionary as one who spends time thinking about or planning the future with imagination or wisdom, and that certainly describes part of what Ted does. But the other part is that he's worked to make that future happen. In his time with indie and major record labels and artist management, as a consultant and advisor to tech and rights holders, Ted has become an industry resource and treasure. This talk is a good one, so settle in, enjoy, and learn a little something from Ted Cohen. Thanks for making time. My pleasure. It's been a lot. Uh, there's been a lot going on this week. There's, you know, with the proliferation of online conferences. Uh, yeah. You know, I literally have been jumping from a Zoom session in one conference to a Microsoft Teams conference uh, on another, you know, for another conference. It's been crazy. Well, my perception of you for a long time has been that you've you've basically you've done obviously the the physical world version of that for years, right? You've been you've worked that circuit and you've been somebody that people have wanted to hear from uh, for a long time. Are you finding your are you attending more conferences as both a participant and a speaker? Like, how has it changed for you? Well, first of all, you have access to all this. I mean, there's, you know, the ability to drop in on a webinar. I mean, we, we have both probably been getting webinar uh, invitations for the past two, three years at least. I think there's more stuff out there right now that is interesting and people want to talk about, whether it's, you know, what's the new normal you know, what's the future of live concerts? What's the, you know, is or what, where are living room concerts and virtual conference is going to fit going forward? There's all that stuff. I have to be honest, and most people who know me know this. I've been doing this, I hate to say almost 40 years in digital. We started a digital, I, I met Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in 1977 in Chicago at the Consumer Electronics Show when it used to be in Chicago before they moved it to Vegas with the intention of going back to Chicago and then they went, why go back? But uh, I met them in 77 in a hotel room and they were sure they basically unzipped a brown zipper case and said, this is the uh, Macintosh, you know, this is the Apple computer. It's going to change the world. And they look like two homeless guys, but uh, Warner owned Atari and I started hanging out with the Atari folks. So I won't go into all that right now, but basically I've been part of a bunch of people that have been looking at what we're doing, what we would do and what we're doing now. We formed a formal group at Warner Music in 82 with Alan Kay, who invented the graphic interface at Xerox Park. He left Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, joined Atari, and in 82 we started this group to look at what was going to happen when the CD came out. In 83 how was a digital format going to affect the music business so we talked about streaming we talked about downloading we talked about burning CDs the average net speed at that time was 300 bits not 300 meg uh, a blank CD was a hundred bucks uh, a CD burner at the time was twenty thousand dollars so 
and uh, and the average computer, like an Atari, had 16K of memory. It had a I'm second. One thing I should have turned off in the background. Everyone saw if we mentioned the word computer. There it goes. Yes. No, I don't need anything. Um, okay. Here's uh, Bloomberg. Hey. Now computer please. stop. Bloomberg Market Minute. Computer stop. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye. We looked at you know at the uh, a, an Atari computer in uh, 1979 with 16K of memory, with a cassette recorder as a drive. You know, uh, five years later, a twenty uh, meg, a twenty meg hard drive at the Apple at, at one of the Apple dealers on uh, in Westwood was three hundred and fifty dollars, not twenty gig, twenty meg. It was, so it was crazy. So I mean, we didn't have the bandwidth, we didn't have the processor power, we didn't have all the tools, but the concepts we started talking about, and it was led by a guy named Stan Cornyn, who was just this amazing guy at Warner who looked at marketing, he, he, what if radio didn't exist, was always his premise. How do we let people know about music if it's not being played on the radio? So we did a lot of consumer advertising. Uh, he's famous for this ad about Joni Mitchell saying, we have 10,000 Joni Mitchell albums sitting in a warehouse and that's a crime. Send us 10 cents and we'll send you the Joni Mitchell album. <laughs> so he led this group and we talked about all this stuff. So. I'm giving you again one of my long-winded answers to a very simple question. Do you attend a lot more conferences? I spend most of my time saying, yeah, we talked about that five years ago. Yeah, we talked about that 10 years ago. Or, or somebody will say, we're the first company who's ever done such and such. And I'm sitting there going, no, actually, they don't realize that Liquid Audio did that in 98. Uh, RioPort did that in 99. You know, Apple didn't invent the iPod. They acquired it from uh, Tony Fidel who had worked at Philips and Philips didn't want the iPod, so he took it to Steve. So I literally, I'm leaning back a lot. What I'm trying to do now is click on things, go into things that I don't know about, that I sit there going, wait, run that by me again. Because as versed as I think I am most of the time, I love those moments where I literally have to go, wait, say that again. I might meet the person later and say, I heard you speak the other day. Could you run that by me again and talk really slowly? Because I think I've got it. And those are better moments for me. Yeah. You know, there, there's a certain lack of looking at history. You know, when someone says, we want to do an interview with you, talk about the future. I said, I've got to talk a little bit about the past, where we've been to inform where we're going. Yeah. Is there an example of a, of a recent topic that really caught your fancy or caught your wonder in a way that either you hadn't, you hadn't seen that take on it before, or it was just a new subject matter to you where you said, wow, I, I've got to, I've got to dig into that. Well, it's actually really understanding how machine learning works. Um, you know, because we can all say, oh, it's AI and it's machine learning and it learns whatever. How does it do that? So um, there's a, uh, an old friend named Judy Stakey. I don't know if you know her. Judy was at Warner Chapel um, Publishing. And Judy and I have known each other probably for 25 years. And uh, she's doing Sunday afternoon, you know, how to get a sync for how to get a sync license for your music, for a commercial, for a tr movie trailer. And I happen to see again on Facebook, Judy Stakey is doing a uh, get your music, uh, you know, uh, licensed. So I clicked on it and there was a guy in there in the talking in the comments about AI music. 
And there's a company called Amper that does, you know, machine learning music. The company's actually funded by uh, one of the investors is Hans Zimmer. Uh, there's Lander that does, uh, you know, machine learning mastering. So you don't have to go to Bernie Grunman anymore, but you should. But if you can't afford to go to Bernie Grunman, you can send your, your finished recordings to, land, you know, load them up on Lander and they get mastered. Those are all great concepts on a high level. How does it actually work? And what is it doing? And, and what's the input? Uh, the person that I met on Judy's, um, you know, sort of Facebook uh, live thing was a kid, uh, a kid, a, a, <laughs> he'll kill me. A guy named Nico Kolorog. And he started saying he's an, a composer who taught himself machine learning to basically take stuff that he writes and then put it into the system and extend pieces or do variations on things that he's written. So he's approaching it as a composer, not as a neural scientist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the tipping point for all this. So I've tried to learn a lot more now about what goes into creating the right learning systems. I mean, there's anecdotes. Microsoft launched a bot, a chatbot about three, four years ago in Japan and China. It was very successful. They launched it in the U.S. It became a, a white supremacist. They had taught it the wrong things, and it picked up slurs and whatever, and so now the chatbot is talking like it's part of the, you know, the White Panther Party. So how does this do it, and how does this affect, you know, where we're going to go with music in terms of recommendation engines in terms of you know getting me to stuff that i don't know i mean my big i always give long answers so i apologize um you know going back to 99 98 there was a service in uh, out of boston called firefly mm -hmm. and it was a very early attempt at machine learning rec uh, uh, recommendation you know and uh, personalization it's gotten better and better. Echonest also came out of MIT in 2006. They got acquired by Spotify. Uh, there's MusiMap that I worked with. There's, uh, again, I also worked with Pandora. In each of these iterations, what I was looking for is, I love Coldplay. I love Steely Dan. I love Michael McDonald. I love the Doobies. I love Chicago. I can't listen to them every day for the rest of my life. Give me something. If I like the doobies, don't recommend Michael McDonald to me. I know that. But get me to something that's going to have that same emotional impact that I get from listening to those artists. And whether you like them or not, those are the ones that resonate for me. A Gen a Jennifer Warren's is one. So, you know, how do we use these tools to enhance our life and not lean on them you know, to run our life. So, I mean, that's when I've leaned in on uh, VR and AR. Uh, there's a company out of uh, Poland that I'm, I just started working with called Teddy Berry, which I love the name anyway. <laughs> and it's an AR, uh, it's an AR creation uh, company that knows once they scan, I'm trying to think of something, uh, let's say they scan the steps of the New York Public Library they can have an AR character walk up the steps. And when it walks up the steps, the shadows are what you would see if that was a real person walking up or down the stairs or sitting down. It literally, once it's mapped 
the environment, it's not just walking down Fifth uh, Avenue or Madison or Sixth Avenue or whatever. If there's a car in front of it, it blocks part of the character. If there's a car behind it, it blocks the car. But also, if it's stepped up on the car, it knows where it is in space. I found it fascinating. So it's getting realer and realer. It's those, I don't know. I don't think it's just the question, but yeah, I continually no. like to learn and I continually like to be, you know, I like that moment when I don't know everything. You know? Yeah. Well, I think I'd like to take the conversation in both directions of, of, of time linear. I'd like, and I'll I'd give, like and I'll give shorter you. answers. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. But I, I would love to, on, on the music AI front, do you have a sense or are people talking about like what are the killer apps there or, or what is the, what's the why around this technology? Well, I mean, in some cases it's cost. I mean, oh, so I'll give you two examples of AI. One, uh, I was working with a company uh, out of Israel about eight years ago. We had a, we had a client uh, called U license and we had approached Warner Chapel at the time about building them a search engine to go through their catalog and identify and tag low-hanging fruit that one of the problems is there's only so many hours in the day. So you're working at Warner Chapel and you get a call from a church in or a synagogue in St. Louis that wants to use, we've only just begun for their fundraising campaign. Uh, it's a 500, you know, it, it, they don't have the money. So this was a system that says, what do you want? What are you looking for? Give us some idea. You could go in and based on saying, I need something that's rainy, driving up Pacific Coast Highway, sad, it would give you a list of, here are 200 songs that fit that category. Here are the ones that you can license right now on the platform without having to talk to anyone because we've pre-cleared these and the minimum is $500 or whatever the price was. You license this guy, Mayor Ezer, who started the company, agreed. I got him to agree with Warner Chapel to build this site. The day before it was going live, Scott Francis, who was running Warner Chapel at the time, calls me and says, We can't launch it. I said, Why? He said, The staff thinks it's the first step in eliminating their jobs. And I said, It's not. It's freeing them, freeing them up to have the $10,000, $50,000. They're not just dealing with the volumes of calls where they're going, no, we can't do that. Bye. And, but they pushed back really, really hard and we didn't launch it. And fast forward about a year and a half later, everyone that objected and Judy was one, Judy Stakey was one of the people who objected and a guy named Brad Rosenberger, they ended up leaving Warner Chapel because Warner Chapel didn't hit their numbers that year. Right. And so what we thought would empower them to increase their revenue they looked at something that was marginalizing them. You know, you now have the other use cases. So I ended up, so I worked with Mayor, and then uh, we did a few of those things. And I ended up working with MusiMap, which is out of Berlin and out of Belgium. The use case there is MTV Networks has, you know, 20 reality shows. Their music budget is really small. But they're looking for things that, you know, deliver a certain emotion or a certain lyric or whatever. You could put into MusiMap system, I need a song like Adele's Hello that has the line in it 
I thought you loved me. And it would find you replacements that weren't Adele, might not be a name artist at all, but the music hits the emotional target and needs the hit. So a music supervisor for one of those shows can bring the music in on budget and maybe save enough that for an opening theme, he can get something or she can get something they really want. So is your sense in that use case, Ted, that um, there will be people and productions and budgets for which the superstar is always in order because they need and want it and can afford it. But there's this sort of, I hate to use the word, but there's this long tail or there's this, there's this mid and low end of the market for which they just need the mood and the sentiment. And it's not about the superstar brand. I mean, yeah, I mean, in the, you know, the term is you, you know, the, the, the name for it usually is underscore. So do you need thematic underscore from a major composer or do you want music in the style of John Williams without it being, uh, without plagiarizing any theme, any major theme that John Williams ever created? You want that feel, but you can't hire John Williams to do your Netflix show. It's just, it's not, it's just not realistic. So in some cases, I mean, you can have an amper, uh, Sam Estes is over there. You can call up Sam and say, um, you know, this is what we need, or go on the site and pick out what you want. Where before you'd have to say, let me find a B level or C level composer that, you know, was an understudy in John Williams, uh, you know, company, his publishing company. When I met, I met Sam Estes a year ago. I don't even think it was, actually it was, it was just before the, right before the pandemic, it seems like a year ago. Yeah. And I teased him. I said, so what, Amper does is it writes songs in the style of Hans Zimmer, like the songs that Hans Zimmer had somebody else write for him in the style of Hans Zimmer. Because <laughs> Hans Zimmer has a Andy Warhol type of a, you know, uh, composer factory where he'll say, here, take this theme here now and embellish it. And basically it's under his supervision, but he may not write every note. He says, well, you know, our company's financed by Hans Zimmer. I went, oh, <laughs> great moments in. Yeah, and, and I really like all the stuff that he says that he wrote. You can do that. You can basically create by, again, training the engine. You know, here's what I'm looking for. You input a bunch of stuff, and it outputs stuff. I had a call with a guy yesterday, part of this hackathon and uh, conference, Wallafornia in Belgium, and a company called Databots, D-A-D-A-B-O-T-S.com. <laughs> it has a channel on their website where it has been continuously outputting death metal. He basically said he put in every, and I can't even name all of them, but he put in you know, bands that may, you know, like Rammstein and Rammstein, Rammstein, I never know which way it is, you know, really death metal, black metal bands, put everything into the system and it's outputting death metal. And it's just instrumental, and it runs 24 hours a day. It's just a continuous, it's uh, streaming the output of the uh, system. And every once in a while, something sort of sounds like something somebody did. And if somebody raises their hand and says, you know, that's really close to that two-chord, I'm being facetious, really close to the thing we did, they'll, they'll take it out of the system. You know, because... Again, monkeys with typewriters. At some point, it's going to accidentally write uh, Romeo and Juliet. So they will go in and, and 
make adjustments. But I mean, it's fascinating that, uh, again, I mentioned Nico. His thing is, I'm a composer. This is no different for him than a new uh, uh, native instrument synth. Yeah. Or, a, or an arp synthesizer or a sequencer or, you know, uh, a new version of Ableton or Pro Tools. I mean, at every iteration here, people who didn't have access to Ableton or Pro Tools or whatever go, well, I wrote and I didn't need that. You know, I, 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 wasn't, I didn't use the sequencer. Now you can. Yeah. So it becomes part of the tool set. So I don't think it's any less of an instrument or, or a uh, accessory than you know, a keyboard, a drum machine, you know, different kinds of mics, different kinds of signal processing. It's just, at the end of it, it has to sound good and it has to achieve the emotional and the, you know, the creative uh, goals. But I don't think it's any less valuable than, you know, things that are being, you know, have been done for years. Yeah, I think making the qualitative argument about the tool itself is never, that's not really that interesting of a, of a debate, right? It's, there's always the, back in the day or when I had to do it or like that, that's, that's the least interesting part of the discussion. I'm curious, what was Ted Cohen doing in 1977 that had him in a hotel room with Wozniak and jobs? I take it you okay. weren't delivering pizza. No, no, no. So this is, so this is um, how crazy this is. So I grew up in Cleveland and in high school, uh, my mother was a, party planner before that term existed. She somehow ended up, there were a few wealthy families in Cleveland who started hiring my mother on a regular basis to do parties that got them in the Sunday uh, style section of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And it came time for my bar mitzvah, being a nice Jewish boy from Shaker Heights, Ohio. The party was uh, an evening at the Cohen Cabana, not the Copa Cabana. Starring Ted Cohen in his first appearance as a man. And my mother ends up calling the local TV station where sometimes she would hire, you know, the newscaster or the weatherman or whatever to be the MC at a party. She said, who's there that could sing at my son's bar mitzvah? And uh, I, used to, I used to remember the guy's name, but I can't. He was the weatherman. He said, well, we've got this new guy here, Mike Douglas. <laughs> the Mike Douglas show. He says, let me ask him if he'd be interested. He just started doing the show two weeks ago. Woody Frazier, who had discovered Merv Griffin, not discovered Merv Griffin, but created the Merv Griffin show, had seen Mike in a piano bar in Chicago. And the story goes that Frank Sinatra sang with, uh, you know, the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, and Mike Douglas sang with the Kay Kaiser Orchestra, and Frank Sinatra became Frank Sinatra, and Mike ended up playing in piano bars. So he's got the TV show. I don't want to burn too much time with this. But he, and he's two weeks into it. And he, uh, he calls my mother and he says, I'll do it for $50 if I can bring my wife. And so Mike Douglas came, sang at the bar mitzvah. I won't hold the picture up. It's hilarious. And it kind of defines what we're doing right at this very, you and I are doing right at this very moment. Uh, he invited me up to say a few words to my relatives that were there at the party. There were about 200 people at the party. And 20 minutes later, my mother's waving her arm going, sit down, you know, you're done. So the picture says to Ted, uh, God bless, you ad-lib very well. Because I just, <laughs> hey, hey, grandpa, grandma, how you doing? What's going on? Uh, his assistant 
was a woman named Marianne Moyer. Marianne, she married a guy named Jim Gallant, Marianne Gallant. Calls my mother one day. Now, there's no voicemail. There's even no answering machines. This is like 1960, late 64, early 65. Says, Mike said to call. We have a band on the show tomorrow. They're coming to Cleveland before they're going to New York. Ted may know them. They're called the Rolling Stones. Uh, if Ted wants to skip school, come on down. He'll be on the, he'll be on the list. So the first time I met Mick and Keith was backstage at the Mike Douglas show. And the first words I ever heard from a Rolling Stone was Keith saying to Mick Jagger, stop being a fucking asshole, sign his album. So years later at EMI, I ended up working with Mick. And he goes, nice to meet you. And I said, no, I met you when I was 14. You wouldn't sign my album. So I manage bands all through high school. I go off to Ithaca College I, in pre-med. The week I get there, I find out Rod Serling's teaching. Uh, I go to hear him speak. I go to the head of the communication school at Ithaca and I said, can I change my major? I'm going to break my mother's heart, but I'm not going to be a doctor. Came back, this all ties, came back to Cleveland and uh, for summer break and I ended up meeting Billy, a guy named Billy Bass. I don't know if you, if you know Billy. Billy ran Chrysalis for a while. Anyway, I got mentored all along the way and I end up, uh, Warner puts me in Boston doing uh, arts development. And my girlfriend at the time was the woman who had been Frank Zappa's secretary in L.A. Frank's manager calls me and said, my secretary just flipped out. She hates L.A. She got in her car. She's driving to Boston. I told her to call you when you get there. We have dinner with her. We ended up living together for 10 years. I'm reading the Sunday Boston Globe. See, now it took five minutes to get to what were you doing in a hotel room? And there's an ad that says, uh, chairman of Advent Corporation, uh, seeking executive assistant. I turned to my girlfriend and I said, you're going to work at Advent. And she said, she had been working at DBX. Noise reduction. She had gotten a job at DBX when she got to Boston. And I said, you're going to Advent. She says, why? I said, they've just come out with this new big, the first big screen TV. It was called the Advent Video Beam. And uh, I said, I want one. So you're going to go work there. <laughs> so she goes to work there. And it turns out the guy she goes to work for is a guy named Peter Sprague. His father was national semiconductor. I referred to him affectionately as a trust fund uh, kid. And he liked things. So he liked Aston Martin. So he bought Aston Martin. Not the car, the company. He liked Advent speakers, so he bought Advent. So she's now his assistant. I start uh, meeting him, and I said, Would you, I've got uh, the Doobie Brothers going to be at Boston Gardens next week. Would you and your wife like to come? He turns to me one day and he says, we're going to Chicago for this thing called the Consumer Electronics Show. I think you'd like it. Why don't you come along with us? And so that was my first CES. We're in the Drake Hotel on uh, Michigan Avenue in his suite. And they've taken the furniture out of the bedroom and turned that into my first experience of a home theater. Mm. Jobs and Wozniak showed up to trade an Apple One computer for an Advent video beam. And because the, uh, the Apple one was the first computer that natively outputted color graphics. So the trade was made. I had nothing to do with it because I didn't work for Advent. Somebody at Advent ended up with an Apple one, which is worth probably $200,000. And uh, they ended up with an Advent uh, video beam, which I guess if you melted it down would be worth about 50 bucks. I have no idea. <laughs> but I... I ended up talking to them and they got me interested, like I said, in talking to Atari. And so I became the liaison between 
Warner Music Group and Atari on where this is going to go. Years later, I ended up reconnecting with uh, Steve Wozniak. We ended up on the board of a company together called Indigo. Because do you know who Captain Crunch is? Oh, yeah. The notorious John, Dra uh, John Draper. phone manipulator. <laughs> John Draper. So John Draper went to prison for uh, Stephen Woz. He took the rap when AT&T had the FBI raid Apple because Apple, before it was a computer company, was actually building uh, boxes that cheated long distance. You'd go into, a, you know, it's a blue box. So John Draper is the engineer at this company, Endigo, in 2007. And he asked Steve to join the board. And next thing I know, I'm on a board with, with Steve. It was very cool. He's a, he's a great guy. Jobs, on the other hand, not speaking ill of whatever, was not as nice as was. We'll just leave yeah. it at that. Yeah, I don't think you'd be the first person to go on the record saying that. Um, is Draper still alive? He's still alive. He had a really bad health scare for a while. He was in the hospital. He was actually in intensive care. There was a, uh, I think it was a Kickstarter campaign, or it might have been in, in Indiegogo. But he was selling recreations of the blue box. They don't do anything anymore. But he was selling, you know, based on the original one that he had. They, he had some made. You got his book, the blue box, and whatever for like a hundred bucks. That's so a bunch cool. of us bought one. Very nice guy. Completely still crazy, but a, a, a really a very nice guy. Was he successful in? Did he did he end up having a a tech or entrepreneurial career, or was he sort of a fringe figure? How how would you well, describe? So, I mean, again, I mean, I talk about my life ends up being a series of serendipity and Zelig moments. So, and I'm, again, I'm jumping all over the place. In 72, when I was a local guy in Cincinnati, before I went to Boston for artist development, I was local for Warner in uh, Cincinnati. And Todd Rundgren comes out with the Something Anything album. And I'm listening to it, and the single was I Saw the Light was the first single from the album. But I'm listening to it, and I hear this song, Hello, It's Me, and I fall in love with it. And I start calling a guy named Paul Fishkin uh, at Bearsville Records in New York saying, Paul, you don't know me, but I'm the local guy. This is a hit. He says, I think it is, you think it is, but nobody at Warner thinks it's a hit. Todd doesn't think it's a hit. I said, can you press up a 1,000 singles for me? Let me just try this. So they pressed up a 1,000 singles. Uh, I put some in some stores in Columbus and Dayton and Cincinnati, a year later, uh, the record had spread. It was a top five record. Todd and I became friends. He came to Cincinnati and did a concert for WKRQ, which was the prototype for WKRP in Cincinnati, the TV show. And then Todd's manager gave me a concert. I said, I can't, I work for Warner. I can't do a concert. But I think the statute of limitations has expired. So I had a friend front it for me. Concert sold out, and I ended up, Todd started talking to me about video. So I got my first video machine in 74. I got a three-quarter inch machine and uh, started looking at what music video was going to be. Paul and I stayed friends. Todd and I stayed friends. In uh, 93, wait, 93 or 94, I signed Todd at Phillips for his No World Order uh, CD-ROM which was an interactive music. It never played the same way twice. It had what I referred to as uh, digital Legos that could reconfigure themselves and still sound like music. You know, it wasn't disparate. They, they had to, it was almost like uh, dominoes. They had to match to go together, but they were different dominoes. So I stayed friends with Paul. I stayed friends with uh, Todd 
Paul worked with a guy named Tolga Katas, and Tolga was a dance music producer in the 80s. When I started doing what I'm doing, um, Paul called me and said, uh, we started this company, Endigo. I want you to meet Tolga. And it was a new video compression technology that was better than anything that was out there at the time. Tolga was friends with Draper. Draper was still friends with Waz. So I end up at a company where I'm there now with Paul Fishkin, who I've known since 72. Hi, my name's Ted. I'm in Cincinnati. And Tolga, who I'd become really good friends with, and, and Steve Wozniak and the infamous John Draper. And it was amazing. I mean, it was relationships. And I keep stressing this. You know, if you meet people that you like, be good to them. You know, try not to do anything wrong. If you do something wrong, apologize as quickly as you can. You know, I always joke Jewish guilt goes a long way. Um, I have had a career, and anybody listening to this who's heard me talk before will hear me say, always saying the same story. But I had um, a guy, I was in, and again, I have this very visual memory of where I was. I, I say it's an uh, you know, episodic memory, and someone says it's visual cortex. But I was in uh, Las Vegas in the Bellagio Cafe in the Bellagio Hotel, and the phone rings. Uh, January of 2001, and he says, hi, my name is Scott Young. Do you remember me? I said, yeah, you're Clark Duvall's secretary at Capitol Records. He goes, yeah, and you're the only guy who used to talk to me about what I wanted to do when I wasn't Clark's secretary anymore. I said, really? He said, you're the only person who used to listen to me and give me suggestions. I said, what are you doing now? He said, I'm global head of digital at Best Buy. I said, cool. Well, why are you calling? He says, what can I do for you? I said, what do you mean? He says, I want to do something. What are you working on that I can, you know, use, you can use Best Buy to realize? I had gone, to, I, had, I had met uh, the folks at SanDisk a few months earlier, and I had this idea about putting, making a, a catalog available. So well, basically the Rolling Stones entire catalog was on a SanDisk micro SD chip. You bought a bigger bang the new album, but if you had, and there were only four or five phones that would do it, but if at two in the morning you wanted to unlock uh, uh, Sticky Fingers or unlock Exile on, you know, Exile on Main Street, you could punch a few codes on your phone, and all of a sudden you now had access to the entire Stones catalog. There was a guy named uh, uh, Rick, I'll think of his last name, uh, Rick, da uh, Rick Dabas who was Clive's right hand at Arista. Rick had tried to get me to go to Arista when I was at Warner doing artist development, but we stayed friends. There was a moment when I had to put this all together and it was literally calling people that I'd always had a good relationship with. We were able in four days to get Mick, Virgin, SanDisk, and, get, and I uh, had a friend who worked at Abco. Uh, what's her name? Uh, I think Iris Keitel, Harvey Keitel's sister. I called Iris. I said, here's the thing. I want the whole catalog. So I'd like the Abco catalog too. So we had the entire Stones catalog on a micro SD chip. And it was the first time that everybody had played nice in the sandbox. We started the discussion on a Thursday. And on Monday afternoon, we announced it in a press release and then had an event at uh, CES, I think about two weeks later. And so, I mean, you end up with this network. I, the technology is great, but you end up with a network of people that 
you know, when they call you, you help them when you, when, if you can. When you call them, they help you if they can. And it makes things go a lot easier. There, there's a couple, I mean, I can give you a couple more examples, but I mean, it's, uh, did, you, did you know um, Jerry Kirby? No. So Jerry, Jerry was the co-founder of Liquid Audio. Yeah, I remember. And with Phil Weiser. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have a reputation for talking a lot, which I'm enhancing right now. Um, but I also have a reputation that if I called you and said, there's somebody I really want you to meet because I think you're going to really enjoy meeting them, you know, I'm doing, I hope you hopefully will know as we know each other that I'm not calling you because they said, can you get a hold of Lawrence and can you, you know, I would say to them possibly you're not, no, he won't be interested in this or you're not ready or the application isn't baked. So Jerry calls me one day on a Tuesday around four o'clock and he, how are we doing time with? We're Okay. Yeah, we're doing great. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jerry calls me around 4 o'clock on a Tuesday and says, I'm flying on the red eye from San Francisco to New York. I'm going to be there Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I need you to set up a meeting with Fred Ehrlich at Sony Music, who was running digital at the time. Five minutes later, I called him back, and I said, you've got a meeting? And he said, I'm getting in at 7 a.m., so I can be there anytime after, like, 9.30. So I said, you have a meeting uh, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. It's Fred Ehrlich. Al Smith, David Waldman, Mark Ganim, Mark Eisenberg. It was basically the entire digital team at Sony. And he goes, well, that seemed really easy. Maybe I should have done that myself. What am I paying you for? And I went, oh, Jerry, I promise you. Ask me to do something else. I'll give you written reports. I'll give you updates. It may take me two or three weeks if you feel that's, you know, more valuable use of what you think you're paying me, of what you're paying me. He goes, no, 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 this is good. I said, just, he says, that was just really quick. Now that was, that was good. I was on the phone with a guy. Do you, have you ever met a guy named Michael Golelli? He was running digital at T-Mobile. He was running music at T-Mobile in, in the mid two thousands. I happened oh, to get, know, yes, I it was him and Kyle Levine, him and Kyle Levine. Great guys. They worked on a, a T-Mobile worked on it. was in the UK though. They worked on a, a Stones project that I was part of uh, around that time. Yeah, they're both at Microsoft now, and they're, they're really, really great people. We were doing the ringtone deal directly with with uh, T-Mobile. We had already done a deal with Movisa, with Mark Levy, and and earlier with Ralph Simon. And I had gotten them from a sixty cent wholesale on a ringtone to up to 95 cents. I, we kept going back and forth. I said, okay, 95 cents, we're good. I take it to a guy named Colin Finkelstein, who I hope watches this. And I said, um, okay, we got T-Mobile done. It's 95 cents. He goes, I think there's a dollar there. I said, Colin, I just told him we're done. He says, we'll go back to him and tell him you're not done. It's a dollar. So I call Michael up and I explain to him, Colin wants it to be a buck. He goes, and I said, you know, it's five cents. What's the, you know, he goes, if I agree to the dollar, are we done? I said, I give you my word. We're done. Where I fucked up. I called Colin one minute later and said, fine, you've got your buck. And again, oh, he goes, no. and he goes, well, that seemed easy. I think there's a dollar and a quarter there. I said, not for me. I said, here's his number. If you want to call him, 
But I've already told him that if you ask for any more, he should go directly to Moviso because Moviso was getting it at the time for 85 cents. And even with their markup, it would be less than a dollar. We never ended up doing the deal with T-Mobile. I called Michael back and I said, call Mark. This isn't going to happen. They're playing games here. I don't have time for it. So I reconnected with them the other day. I sent him a note on LinkedIn that just said, can we go to, can we go to a dollar and a quarter? And this is like 15 years later. He's like, he writes back, he goes, call me tomorrow. So we talked for about an hour. He's having, you know, I mean, I've always tried to protect the people on the other side of the table. I mean, I'll, t- I'll tell you one other thing. This is a weird one. Because um, it came out yesterday and I hadn't thought about it in a long time. When I was on the Who Tour in 82, uh, Bill Kirbishley, their manager, says to me one day, he just turns to me, he goes, you know, you're going to have a really sad life. And I said, thank you. Uh, why? He says, you're too egalitarian. I said, what do you mean? He said, you want everybody on all sides of the table to be happy with whatever the deal is, whatever. I said, yeah, because at the time I was fighting with them over, you know, the concept used to be, uh, where, where were you in your teenage years? Where was I? Yeah. I was uh, in New Haven, Connecticut. Okay. So there was AVZ and NHC. Yeah. Okay. So ideally, somebody at ABC would call and say, we want to promote the Van Halen show. NHC would get, uh, you know, blanked. What I tried to do on the Who Tour was ABC would get the backstage visit the night of the show. NHC would get to send a winner to the show in Boston two days earlier. Whatever station was in the market that should get a piece of it got something that was unique. And in every city, I'm like going... Because he was getting calls going, no, we want the show as an exclusive. And I'm going, no, if you want to sell the maximum amount of tickets, you want NEW, you want PLJ, you want the oldie station, you want everybody involved. So I'm trying to parse it out. And he goes, you worry about this too much. I have never changed. I mean, I'm always trying to figure out how do I make sure that you don't feel that you got screwed in the deal, that you weren't bent over the, you know, that literally that you weren't, um, you know, coerced into making a deal you don't want to make. So when I ended up, and again, we're not in any, I love interactive because it goes all over the place. You know, I go to, uh, uh, in, the date was like May 5th or 6th of uh, 2000. I had been hired by uh, Jay Samet to put on a private EMI digital conference. I had just done web noise. Uh, the November before we did Web Noise 99, and Web it was like, it, were you there? Yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> it was like it was like Woodstock. It was at the Century Plaza in, in L.A., and it was amazing. Yeah. And Jay said, "Could you do a private conference for EMI?" I said, "Yeah." He said, uh, "Could you fu- could you uh, fund it? Could you get it funded?" I said, "Easily." He goes, "Okay, what's the pitch?" I said, "You've just hired thirty digital people around the world." Microsoft, you can go to 30 different cities over the next two or three months and meet each individual person and, you know, do the pitch. Or you can come to Atlanta the weekend of May 5th and uh, you can meet everybody. We're going to hang out. We're going to go to movies. We're going to have a show. And by the way, you're buying dinner. It's $50,000. It's $50, so I was, in, I was able to raise $300,000 excuse me, for a private get-together, and it turned out really good. But when I got there, 
and I have to tell you the other part of it. I, I decided I wanted to see what the subway was like in Atlanta. So I took Marta from the airport to Buckhead to go to the uh, Ritz-Carlton. And I get off the subway and I come upstairs and there's a cab outside. And I said, I need to go to the Ritz-Carlton. And he laughs. He goes, okay, get in. And he did a U-turn around the street and said, okay, here it is. It was across the street. I didn't see it. So I end up checking I did that in. the first time I went to New York to get to the Roosevelt Hotel. I got out of Grand Central Station, got in a taxi cab, said, take me to the Roosevelt. He drove around the Right, exactly. <laughs> I love those moments. So I go into the bar at the, at the Ritz-Carlton, and Jay's sitting there with a guy named Frazier Hollis. Frazier ran mm. uh, Amplified.com. And he goes, Ted, why didn't you tell me? I said, tell you what? And he hands me the program for the conference. And I'm looking at it and I went, oh, I said, you know, I, I should have mentioned to you, it's really, it happened very quickly. I guess I should have briefed you. Frazier leaves and I turned to Jay and I said, what the fuck? In the program, it said Jay Samet, Senior Vice President, uh, New Media, EMI. Ted Cohen, Vice President, New Media, EMI. I said, this isn't going to work. He says, I said, he said, what do you mean? I said, I told you a year ago, you can't afford me. I said, I've got 25 clients that are paying me reasonable retainers. And I'm making, you know, I'm, I'm doing much better than I could do if I came to work for you. I, I won't go into the numbers, but the numbers were stupid at the time. It was the first digital. I had a lot of, I had, I was representing everyone. I joked that I wanted to be the Alan Grubman of digital in that I represented everybody in the room and nobody had a problem with it. And I did. And every, again, Jerry Kirby would call me and say, so just between you and me, what's Rio Port up to? And I'd say, you know, it's funny. They asked me yesterday what you, up, what you were up to, and I told them I couldn't tell them. But if I'll tell you what they're up to if I can then call them and tell them what you're up to. No, never mind. I just thought I'd ask. So I'm sitting there with Jay, and he says, no, I got it all worked out. You're allowed to keep your clients. I said, what do you mean? He says, you're going you're gonna to head up uh, digital business development, but you can keep your consulting practice just have Jill, a woman, Jill Johnson. I don't know if you've met Jill over the years. She's wonderful. She took over running the company, and I had no active role in it anymore, but I, I had you know, residual income. He says, the one thing is you can't negotiate with your clients for EMI. You can't, you can't be on both sides of the table. That lasted for about a month. And about a month into it, I showed him that I could get the deals done quicker, my clients were getting less of a deal than they were trying to get, but they were actually getting the deal that they would have ended up with anyway after going back and forth. And it was a much, it was a much more efficient process. And I made sure that I was being true to what EMI wanted to do and I was being true to the client. And people were saying to me, you can't do both sides of the table and satisfy everybody. And I said, you can't. And there's a way to do it. You know, with, you, just, you have to be transparent with everyone. So I'm saying, look, I know you wanted to pay this, but you're going to get that. Um, so I get brought in sometimes by clients when they're stuck on a negotiation to basically say to the person across the table, look, you and I work together. You know you're overreaching. Come on, you know. If you're going to overreach, there was one company, I can't tell you exactly who it was, but there was a company that wanted to change one of the client's deals from 50-50, where it had been for four years, to 90-10. And I said, you're not being greedy enough. Let's just go for 100%. When the checks come in, we'll just endorse them to you. Why stop at 90? If you're going to take 90%, take 100, you know. And they were like, well, what do you mean? I said, you're, 
can you really sleep at night saying you're going to change? You want to change the 60-40? You want to, whatever the reasoning is, I can understand why you're saying we're four years into it. You know, it should be a more equitable split, but I mean, it should be a, you know, we should get a, a bigger share. 90-10? We ended up in a really good place, but I had to sort of go, we actually don't need you, right? I mean, you're not as important to us as you were. And so if you, if you want to try and, you know, do it on your own, we'll take a year off and then come back to us in a year and see. We were providing a service. And if I keep talking, you may figure out who it is. So I'm not going to do it. But <laughs> it, there was the ability to say, we can walk away from this. And they, we ended up at a, we ended up with the client paying more than the 60-40, but not much more. But for that, they got um, better treatment. What, just think, there were other things that, that I said, if you'll do this and this, and they were sitting there, I'll say, they'll agree to it. We get it all done, and one of the partners turns to the person in the room saying, can we just, and we both turned to him in unison accidentally and went, shut up, we're done. So, and I kept saying to the client, if you don't like what I'm saying, or you, either one, either of the parties in the room, if you want me to leave, tell me when you want me to leave. But from my perspective, this is what you need to do. So, I mean, I've worked really hard to move things forward. And I'm also very good at calling someone up saying, that call we were on just now, you were really an asshole. And you can't do that again. Well, why, why do you care if I, what I said to them? I said, because it just isn't, you, you don't grind people like that. I happened to have one of those calls this morning. So I just called somebody <laughs> up and I went, don't do that again. And they went, what do you mean? And then they actually wrote me in a uh, internal thread on Slack. Uh, a, a, a public, uh, hey, I'm glad we worked everything out this morning. Like, we're fine. So I mean, let me, and again, let me we're out of, this, okay, go ahead. You, you, you told me a few minutes ago that you, you referenced um, when I started to do what it is I do. Right. Um, in, re in regards to sort of your business. Right. How, what, what, what do you do? How do you describe <laughs> what you do? Um, cause I have a notion, but I'd love to hear you articulate. I, because I believe that because of the way I approach it, I'm not an attorney, but I, 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 I explained to somebody who was asking, why do we want to work with you? And what are your skill set? And I went, well, you called me. Your, your boss wants to hire me. Now he wants me to sell you on why he's hiring me. But here, I'll go through it. And I made a list of, this is what I think I'm good at. I said, I'm not an expert on any of those things, but I have a really good appreciation for each of those issues, whether it's legal, whether it's you know distribution pipeline issues. I have enough knowledge about the various facets that I can make an informed suggestion of how we you know, approach the negotiation and solve it. So I said, I'm an enlightened generalist. And I, you know, I, when I was at uh, Phillips, I was doing the Cranberries disc. I'm trying to do this one really fast. When I was doing, we were doing, I was producing a title, uh, a CD-ROM for the Cranberries. My idea, because CDI was, if, if anybody remembers what CDI was, it was a failed platform from Phillips that they spent $1 billion trying to launch. I wanted a single SKU, a single uh, disc that played in a PC, played in a Mac, played in a CDI player, played, in your, played the audio tracks in your audio player, played the video files on either an MPEG uh, video card. Basically, it would play on anything. And 
they said, well, I don't know if that can be done. I said, they said, go talk to engineering. I went down, was hanging out with the engineers. I said, this is what I need. How quickly can you do it? And how much will it cost? And they said, it'll take six months and a half a million dollars. I said, you've got three months and I've got 200 left in the budget. And they went, yeah, we can do it. And we delivered a disc. It was, it was called, if you, if you know, like CDs are red book audio. Yeah. And uh, video is white book audio and photo CD is yellow book. There were, there were literally these binders that were colored binders that had these standards. We called it a rainbow disc because it played green book, red book, white book, yellow book. And blue book was an ant CD. Phillips and Holland went nuts on me because I was, break, I was violating every standard. Every one of those, we had, we had basically created, you know, nachos in terms of all the different uh, things that were in there. Franken but we were able to get it out. I was able to get it into retail. I was, able to, I was able to talk to the folks at Tower Records about carrying it in Tower and talk to the people at Cybersmith and uh, which a micro, uh, at the time, micro, uh, micro pro or microcomputer. I was getting computer stores to carry it. And we had two different, we had the same disc, but one was in a software box and one was in a uh, CD. You know, the, the, the CD was uh, just in the jewel box without the packaging. We sold a quarter of a million of them and at $29. And it was very successful because I believe that I'm able to talk to everybody in the various, you know, uh, participants, the very people that are involved and get everybody to play nice in the sandbox. So what I do now is when I'm working with people is what are your objectives? What are you trying to do? And, you know, let me see what I can do. My thing is I give you, I, I, my running joke is when someone says, what do you cost? I said, I cost X to do for you what needs to be done and tell you what you need to know. And I cost two X to agree with everything you say and only do what you tell me to do. You know, because I think my value to you is that is, you know, my input. If you're not going to listen to me uh, and you're not going to take any input and you're going to just go off and do whatever you want to do, I actually don't want to take the money from you because my, my name is attached to it. And when it goes south, it was, well, I heard your client went under. Yeah, but he never listened to me. And so I don't want to be in that position. I had a client that I resigned from because he would call me going, I just made a deal with Sony Publishing. What do you think? I think you made a deal with Sony Publishing. If you hang on a second, we got to pause. The Roomba went. The Roomba goes off on the hour. <laughs> you're you're surrounded by technology that's thinking for itself. Right. The guy can't. No. The guy would call me like every few days saying, "I just did such and such. What do you think?" I said, you, "I can't work with you anymore because if you want me to be a cheering section and congratulate you, first of all, yay! But I'm really you made. If you had sent me the publishing deal." two days ago to skim through it and just give you not a legal opinion, but an operational of what does that agreement mean and how can they screw you in that agreement? Then I'm of value to you. They're, they're, you're familiar with Muse. That was So I'm consulting for Muse in around 2011 or 12. And this guy named there, Lonnie Chenkin and Muse at the time was owned by Alliance out of, uh, out of uh, Florida. Lions Long disturbed. after, uh, who was in it? Trev Huxley? Well, Trev had left Muse. Paul Zullo had left Muse. This wealthy guy bought it along with the guy uh, who owned uh, Alliance. They were partners on it. 
but uh, uh, Scott Lair was still there and uh, Gary Geller, who, again, so I ended up working with Gary Geller. Gary Geller was our roadie on, on the Sex Pistols tour. Now he's business development at Muse at that point. So Alani calls me one day and might as well just tell you the whole thing and you can edit it down. Lonnie calls one day, he goes, I got to ask you a question, some questions. He goes, are we a client? Yes. Do we pay you? Yes. Do we pay you on time? Yes. Do you like us? Yes. Do we pay you enough? No, but that's another question. We'll deal with that another time. He says, okay, I have to ask you. I got a call just now and I'm kind of upset. Did you recommend Rovi to somebody yesterday? I said, yeah, but we pay you. I said, yes, but somebody called me and said, who is the best at a certain thing? Rovi is better at it. As I always go mirror, mirror on the wall, you're not the fairest of them all. And he goes, but we pay you. And I say, not to say you're the best if you're not. I said, my value to you is people know when I tell them something that it's either true or that I totally believe it's true. I'm not reading from a script of these are the most wonderful people and they have the most. I said, so when we go into Sony next week to meet with Fred Ehrlich, when I say to Fred, Muse is the best for what you need them for, for, um, I forget what it was, for. there was a thing that we were going to do at Sony. Fred knows that, yes, I'm getting paid by you, but I wouldn't sit there and say, Fred, you need to do this because it's great for Sony. You know, and a lot of times I'll say to clients, you always have to think about Universal knows why you want to deal with them. Sony knows why you want the deal with them. Why do they want the deal with you? Yes, there's an advance, but what's it doing to enhance Sony's website, enhance Sony's, you know, how their artists get exposed? What is the underlying value of the technology that's going to make it easier for Sid Schwartz at Sony Legacy to promote the Journey catalog. And so really think about, not hi, we really want to deal with you, but here's why you want to work with us. We're giving you know, in-depth exposure to legacy artists. We're doing whatever, whatever the, you know, the application or the service is. And sometimes people have trouble with that. I mean, I, I, I don't care at this point. I worked with um, Cobuzz, which is a French, uh, it's sort of they're all, like Deezer, it's a Paris-based, high-res, you know, 24-bit, 192. The gentleman who owns the company uh, is, a, is a serial entrepreneur. His name is Denis Thabeau. Really smart man. I really enjoyed working with him, but I discovered that he w it was, I can't think of another way to put it. He was very Trumpian in that he would pose a question like, wouldn't you agree that such and such is whatever? And I said, well, no, actually, uh, I think it's this. But, uh, of course, it's obvious that, no, Denis, here's why it isn't. Uh, he stopped asking me things because he wasn't asking me, what do you think about this? It was, don't you agree with me? Yeah. And when I didn't agree all the time, we drifted. And so I, I worked for him for a year, and, it was, and I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the product is great. He's a wonderful guy, but he, it's, it, it, he's the CEO, chairman, owner of the company. And... He, he wanted me to get the deals done, which I, I think I did a pretty good job. But he also wanted me, you know, he asked me um, aesthetic questions about, well, don't you think, whatever. And I go, no, actually, I think it's more like this. You know, other clients are very open to that kind of input. I've been, I've, 
you know, had clients that we have really, you know, just go at us. You know, I've been brought in to do day long, rip it apart. And I always go, it's insightful, but not spiteful. I don't try and be a, a, you know, a jerk about it, but I'm going, here's where you're missing it. And in my opinion, in my opinion, not in the world, but here's where I think the disconnect is. So it's been a lot of that. It's getting them, it's getting people in front of people. If you're, for example, if you're doing a deal with Universal, uh, there's a great guy over there, Tahin Roy, who I'd worked with years ago when he had a startup. Um, I can, let's say, allegedly call Tahin up and say, I've got a client you have to see. They're not funded yet. They don't have any money for an advance, but I want you to see this first because it's amazing. And normally it's who is the attorney or how much is their potential advance or who are they funded by? And I'm able to jump that line because I don't want anyone to ever turn to me and go, I, you just stole an hour of my life that I'll never get back. You owe me. That was, that was horrible. I really, I, it's almost like pre-qualifying somebody for a mortgage. I mean, I won't bring someone in till I think that coming in to see you, that you're going to go, Ted, that was great. And I love these guys and let's do something as opposed to, okay, you got them the meeting they wanted. You owe me dinner sometime. Yeah, it's a it's a, you're trading in value add as opposed to trading in constant favors. Yeah, you know, and so most people, literally, I mean, it, it, I will write to um, Mark Cuban's not a good example, but I mean, there are people. Uh, Chris Freilich, first round capital. I don't know if you know Chris. Chris was they funded Ring. They funded uh, first round is an amazing company. If I write, I need ten minutes. He doesn't say send me the deck. What's it about? He goes, I'm good tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock, but I only have 10 minutes, and I write back, no Van Halen stories. Uh, and, <laughs> and I do 10 minutes. And, you know, I had one of those. I was on with, uh, there's a wonderful guy who you may know, Jeff, Jeff Cottrell. Mm-hmm. So he was at Converse. He built those recording studios, whereas in India, whatever. And then he went to Coca-Cola. Uh, they had, just, didn't they have, like, a flagship one in Brooklyn? They had one in Brooklyn. They had one in Boston. Yeah. And that was his idea at Converse, and just an amazing guy. Then he went back to Coca-Cola, where he had started. In 2004, a company approached me at uh, EMI to uh, do a test on a product. It's called Fat Noise, P-H-A-T-N-O-I-S-E. And what it did was, uh, what kind of car do you have? I have a 1992 Volvo 240 GL in mint condition. Did you have a, <laughs> did you have a six-disc changer in the back? <laughs> no, but I've had a car with a with a with a multi Okay. So this was the coolest thing ever. You you basically opened your trunk, you unscrewed your six disc player from its mount, you okay. screwed in the fat noise unit, you plugged the cable back in because it had an adapter cable that matched your cable in your BMW. Yep. And now you had a hundred gig removable cartridge that had a dock also in your house. So you take the cartridge out, bring it into the house you know, rip your CDs, put it onto the cartridge. You now had 5,000 albums in the trunk of your car. Yeah. But the head unit on the, your, your radio still thought it was talking to a six-disc changer. There was no new software. You now, though, when you started scrolling, instead of scrolling through disc one through six, you're scrolling through discs one through 5,000. And the only thing they added was they added uh, uh, voice synthesis to say, Robbie Williams, Neil Young, 
So you could turn it while you were driving and you go, oh, there's Neil Young, I'll do it. Anyway, they sold the company to Harman Kardon. Uh, there were two co-founders, uh, Susan, well, I don't know who else was involved, but the people I dealt with, Susan Paley and Sharon Graves. They sold it to Harman Kardon. Susan, uh, Susan went to Harman Kardon. Sharon went to DTS. I ended up working for, for Sharon at DTS. They have their version of uh, mesh network similar to Sonos. And they were having trouble with uh, Spotify and Tidal and Amazon making uh, their interoperable mesh network compatible with the music services. So she hired me to go to the services and call people like Drew Denbo, who had been at Rhapsody in devices and then was at Amazon as they were, please don't, nothing answer. I get scared every time I say the A word, something goes off here. I called Drew up and I said, you know, here's why this needs to happen. Here's who these people are. I lost track of Susan. Uh, I thought, assumed that she was still at Harmon Carden. I reconnected with her three months ago and she says, uh, I'm on vacation right now. Let's talk in a couple months. Uh, and so I called her about two months ago. And I said, so what are you up to? She has this company. If, uh, I don't know if you have a second computer in front of you, but uh, she has a company called droplabs.com, D-R-O-P-L-A-B-S. So I said, what are you doing? She said, uh, we're making these sneakers. So as he reaches down, these are the sneakers. But you will notice they light up. <laughs> they are stereo subwoofers in the shoes. Get out of here. They're amazing. They're just fucking amazing. Uh, they, what happens is you sync the shoes to your uh, iPhone or your Samsung. The shoes then send, and then you, the shoes then sync to Spotify. And then the shoes send the rest of the information. So the link is from your phone to the shoes. You log on to Spotify. The shoes are sending the rest of the information to your earbuds. And, you know, I'm talking a little bit out of school, but I think Jeff could be a great advisor to her. So I introduced them and they hit it off and they love each other and we'll see what happens with it. And she, I, she sent me a pair that I did a review on for the newsletter for Media Tech Ventures that I work with now. And... Uh, but the funny part for, for anyone who knows me, I said, so you've been at Harmon all these years? She said, oh, no, no, I left Harmon in like 2009. I said, where'd you go? She says, oh, I was the first hire. I was the president of Beats for six years. <laughs> She's working for Jimmy and Dre, and I must have done some kind of an audible gasp. And she goes, why, don't you like them? I said, no, I love them. I was just thinking about all the headphones I missed over six years. <laughs> she's like yeah she i always wondered why you didn't call i said i didn't know where you were and she's telling me all my friends who were calling her who i'd introduced to her who knew she was there anyway the guy who invented the shoes brought them into beats around 2014 or something jimmy and dre passed on them when she left and took a couple of years off she then called the guy and said what did you ever do with that shoe idea they partnered and she finally brought the shoes they officially ship uh, August 1st. And so on a, she may never be a client, but she's a friend and she's always been good to me. So, you know, Arabian, you know, Arabian Prince. Yeah, of course. So Arabian and I have become, I'd say 
not best friends, but we're, I don't, I always like to overstate it, but we get along really, really well. And so uh, I introduced Arabian yesterday to Susan for, he's more of the demographic that can talk about how cool the sneakers are as opposed to a uh, over 50. We'll leave it at that. Uh, Heavy set guy from Shaker Heights. So Arabian's going to talk to her later today about being an evangelist for the, for the shoe company. Yeah. And so I well, like connect. I like connecting people. And in a lot of cases, it's, you know, someone will say, can you do an introductory email? And I'll do an email that says, Lawrence, meet Arabian. You have much to talk about. And that's all it will say. It won't say. And both sides know that if I introduce you to Arabian, that what he wants to talk to you about or what you want to talk to him about is going to be of interest to the other party. And, you know, let me know if anything comes out of it and let me know if somebody's not answering. If someone's not answering the talk to each other, then I smack the other side that didn't, you know, answer the email. You know, and I'll say to companies in some cases, you may never hire me, but I like what you're doing. And, you know, here's what, I, in other words, it's not always altruistic. I like, you know, I like getting, I like getting hired. But at the same time, um, I like seeing companies, you know, I like seeing companies grow. You know, I will do a lot of stuff. I don't know how else to explain this. You know, I like working with really clever people and smart people and nice people. And I like mentions and I don't, I don't tolerate MOOCs very much. Um, and so I, I tell, to, you know, Toby Mamus. Mm-hmm. So Toby and I have been friends since when he first started working for Alice. And I met Shep in 1971 in Cincinnati at the Carousel Inn on, uh, I forget what the name of the road. it was by the Cincinnati Gardens. And he ruined the rest of my life because Shep Gordon is one of the smartest people I've ever met. He's one of the most honest people I've ever met. And he's most, one of the most pleasant people. And I started judging every manager afterwards based on Shep Gordon. And it's a really high bar. Yeah. I've met smart managers that are assholes. I've met lovely people that can't get out of their own hotel room. I mean, Shep was like the real deal, but he taught me a lot. Uh, if I'm leaving words of wisdom for whatever, um, I worked for Sandy Gallen in the mid eighties. If you called me when I was at Warner, uh, I would call you back at the end of the day. If I missed you, I would leave a message with your, uh, uh, you know, your service, your answering service or on your machine. There still was no voicemail. 84. I go to work for Sandy and Sandy says, did you get a hold of Lawrence? And I go, yeah, I left him a message. I didn't ask you if you left him a message, you stupid <laughs> much things. Uh, did you get a hold of him? Did he sign the deal? Did he get the, did you get the check? Is the check good? Is the check in the account? Did the check clear? Did you get the deal to the attorney? So they know it's done. Otherwise you didn't do shit. Get the fuck out of my office. And I learned the difference between you called me. I called you back. So you couldn't say, Hey, you never returned my, I mean, if you answered the phone, I wanted to talk to you, but if I didn't reach you tag, you're it. I, you know, I returned your call. Sandy taught me about get it done. And whatever you have to do to get it done, get it done. Just be relentless. You know, I tried to smooth that out so I wasn't doing it Sandy style. But uh, it was a it was an interesting it was an interesting life lesson in how you get you know how to get things done. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for being so generous with your time and your story. 
<laughs> I really appreciate it. Did I answer? Do you have other questions? I'll do short. I'll do, you know, one sentence answers. I don't, I feel bad. Do you know Dan Steinberg, Steiny? I do. He's, yeah. Okay. So two years ago, th almost three years ago now at South by, he interviewed me. He was doing a bunch of interviews at the Driscoll in his room. It's two months. It's three months. It's six months. And I finally called him. I said, when are you airing my uh, podcast, uh, Promoter 101 podcast? He said, Ted, I asked you one question. And an hour later, I said, thanks. <laughs> and I said, he said, I don't know what to do with it. I said, oh, I've had this problem before. Just intercut it with the questions. Because <laughs> I answered everything you wanted me to talk about. I just did it, you know, as verbal uh. diarrhea. Uh, and so he no. did that and he answered, he added the questions and whatever, and, and he ran it and, and I listened to it and it was okay. But it starts out with where do you think this is going or whatever. And I, you know, I went through and here are the promoter issues and this is what happens when the show does. But I can equally, I worked with Prince for the first four years and I became friends with everybody in the band and actually became friends with Prince. He came over to my, at the end of the Dirty Mind tour, he came over to my house two nights in a row to hang out and watch music videos and not say a single word. I mean, he just sat there and just said, show me music videos. MTV was coming out a few months later. Des and I, though, Des Dickerson, who is the lead guitar player along with Andre Simone, we've stayed friends continuously. We're working now on doing, he, he's been working on doing a documentary about Prince from high school up to Purple Rain because he played with Prince in high school. He was in the bands. They went to high school together. So... These friendships, and the, what, if they're good people, we stay in touch. And the people that I'm calling now, and I won't get into where we're at with it, there's somebody who asked me something one time, and there was no upside for me doing what they asked other than it was a nice thing to do. And so when I called them and said, I want you to hear what Des is up to, things moving forward, and we may have found the executive, we may have, may have found the name people to put on the project, you know. Hypothetically, you know, Quincy Jones presents or whatever, whatever that branding is. But it comes out of, I got a cold call from this guy five years ago asking me, could you help me with such and such? And I went, yeah, sure. Because I knew who he was. So I always say to people, just, you know, until you find you can't be, be as nice to everybody as you possibly can be. Be as, you know, collaborative as you can be. And if I say I'm going to call you back on Tuesday and I don't call you back till Thursday, I'm writing you notes going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's not like, well, I was busy. It was like, you have no, no, you have no idea how many times I went to pick up the phone to call you and then something else happened. So um, that's how I approach it. My, uh, uh, my girlfriend, Maggie, is like, why do you spend all this time talking to all these people? And Every once in a while, I'll show her an email back saying, I met you in the lobby of whatever a year ago, and you introduced me to so-and-so, and now we got funded, and we'd like to talk to you and whatever. And I go, even if that never happened, you know, it was somebody that I wanted to help that I believed in. Um, I think it was the, I can send you the image. You'll get a kick out of it. In 2000, I, the uh, Jewish Federation of L.A. had us do a Let's Kibitz about digital. And so I had Christina Calio from Microsoft. I had uh, uh, David um, from, uh, oh God, from Universal, the attorney, David uh, Ring. I had David Ring. I had Richard Wolpert, who 
had been working with uh, Ukaipa and with uh, Ovitz. It was, a, it was the all-star list, and then there was a kid on the panel, and everybody's going, why, you, why is he on the panel? I said, he's obnoxious as hell. He's a pain in the ass, but he's one of the smartest people I ever met. And you'll say that, I remember when we had the kid on the panel. So now when I say to people, yeah, I, I had Travis do this panel back in 2000. And uh, Travis, I think Travis, what is uh, Travis Kalanick's current net worth? <laughs> net worth of Travis Kalanick is $2,600,000,000. Million million. <sighs> so literally, <laughs> when I call, when I've had a couple of times I've had to call Travis in the last five years. When I call him, he calls me back. When I write him, he writes me back. Because when nobody liked him and he was running scour, I mean, my mouse pad here is uh, <laughs> my scour exchange mouse pad. Then he went to do red swoosh and whatever. But when I met him, I went obnoxious as hell, but so smart. And I, you know, um, ended up interacting with him over the years. And then, you know, he's, he is who he is. But even before... You know, if, if you wanted to do a uh, uh, conspiracy theory, uh, I would say that uh, Travis uh, created the pandemic. Because about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, he started creating this business about ghost kitchens for major brands. So you would order food from P.F. Chang's, but it wasn't coming from P.F. Chang's down the street from you. It was coming from a central kitchen that only was making the food for delivery. It's become very big. Ghost Kitchens is a huge business right now. And that's, yeah. and that's what he invested in. And now we're relying on Ghost Kitchens for a lot of our meals. Um, I'll set you free. Every no, time. I think it was beautiful. And I think that um, people always benefit from the insight. And I know I benefit from the insight. And I love talking to you. I love hearing you talk. So thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day. You too. Be well. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so, so much to Ted Cohen. What a talk. Thanks to Ant Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at www.lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to get your podcasts from. Please, as always, keep your feedback coming. I love to hear from you. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay in touch.